Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here. Bright, shining, happy faces. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, to glorify your name, to exalt you in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we offer up, as we offer up the desires of our heart to you in your name, according to your will. As we come to your word and are encouraged there, uh, let all of it be saturated with the scriptures that we would glorify you, that we would know you better today. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Adam is going to come and read the psalm for us. Good morning, good morning. Uh, We'll be reading from Psalm 105. And so we begin with verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. 
Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. He is ju- his judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions, to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his peoples to be very fruitful, and made them stronger than their adversaries. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal uh, craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant, and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them, and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies, and gnats in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain, and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines also, and their fig trees, and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, and young locusts, even without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land, and ate up all the fruit of their ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their vigor. He then, then he brought them out, of, out with gold, so, silver and gold, and among his tribes were not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to illuminate by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a, shout, with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations, that they might take possession of the fruit of their people's labor, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. I was reading this this week, and I was just reminded that whenever we read the Old Testament, especially narrative, we must remember it's God's story, and that God is the one who performed all these marvelous acts, and it was for his purposes. And this psalm, I think, is a fantastic reminder of that. So praise God, and may he bless the reading of his word this morning. Turning now to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we are on section 7. Look at parts 1 and 2, which read, Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. Looking at this, R.C. Sproul talks about the fact that it's always been a covenant of works. So with Adam and the covenant of works, he failed immediately. But with Christ, it was also a covenant of works, but he fulfilled all the works of the law perfectly. 
Now, from our perspective, it indeed is a covenant of grace because we have done nothing to earn it. We have done nothing to deserve it. It is a free gift of his. In part two, where it says on their part, speaking of us, he requires faith in him. That faith even comes from the Lord. So we really do nothing. Every part of it is given to us freely so that we can uh, take part in that covenant of grace. So we have no part in it whatsoever. The distance between God and the creatures is so great that they never could have obtained the reward of life except through God's voluntary condescension. There's no way that we could reach God. There's no way that through our works, our good efforts, or whatever, we could come even close. And that's demonstrated so clearly in the failure in Eden, in the fact that Adam and Eve, and I believe there's hints in the text that that happened very, very rapidly, sinned. And they immediately did what was wrong, and they immediately violated that covenant of works. And so here we have the second Adam, Jesus, who came to fulfill that covenant that Adam could not. And we often overlook the fact that Christ lived a sinless, perfect life. And we, we focus more on his atoning death. Both are important. Because his sinless, perfect life made up for what Adam could not, and we could not, and we continually will fail on our own. And so he has given us that gift of his good works that we could not have. you'd like to stand sing together the bulletins over there have lyrics in them if you would rather have them that way
Kobe, he's the new evening chaplain at the mission, so he just started. Um, let's pray that that transition is good. He's a pastor in Wakefield who does that part-time. And then Jan Gear, who had a very serious fall, broke her ankle, will need surgery. Otherwise, what other prayer requests or praises do we have this morning? Both Hughes households? Uh, Hughes 2.0 at least, not sure about 1.0. Yeah. All right. Anything else this morning? Uh, one of our members up in Creighton uh, mentioned a woman this morning. Her name is Bethany. Her husband is Alex. They're believers. Bethany this past week attempted suicide, and they need prayer for her recovery from that and uh, next steps of getting her help. So this was friends of somebody in Creighton, is that what she said? Yeah. Is that the, okay. Charlie, you don't have to write this down, Charlie and Creighton works with a group called Royal Family Kids Camp. Oh, okay. All right. My my nephew in he's in Florida. Mm-hmm. He's early forties. Been married less than a year, and he is in the hospital. And he's kind of pretty bad off, I think. But he's a new believer, so I. Okay. I just won't rock his faith and that 
Yeah. Trust in God for helping. What's his name? His name is James. James. And okay. His wife is Christine, and they're both new Christians. They just got baptized actually maybe two months ago. Okay. All right. Anything else this morning? Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day, and we again thank you that we can come here and worship you, and we can gather together publicly to worship you. We often don't think about what a privilege that is, as many Christians around the world don't have that privilege. They must meet in secret and must worry about people infiltrating their ranks and Lord we may complain a lot about our country uh, but we are grateful for the freedom that we still do have may we take advantage of that and the time that you have given us to spread your gospel to those that need to hear Lord help us as a church to uh, be very deep into your word to read it to study it to know it and to tell it to other people uh, that your church will continue to grow and continue to thrive no matter what happens in the larger culture. Lord, we lift up uh, some of these requests this morning. We pray for the Hughes family that is sick, and I know how that is when one person gets sick, they pass it to the next, and so on and so forth forever. And just pray for healing and that it won't spread all over the place and that they will be able to get back on their feet and back to uh, normal life. We pray for uh, for Bethany. Um, we have no idea what's was going through her head or what is going through her head now. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you would be with her and help her as she see the hope and uh, and continuing in this life, no matter what circumstances led her to attempt to take her own life. But Lord, we know that it is never as bad as we think it is, and help her, help her husband and family and friends to uh, be able to intercede in the best way in that situation. Uh, we also lift up um, Donna's nephew James as he is struggling with a health issue and has become a new believer. May he cling to you. May he see this as the first real test of what it means to be a Christian. And may he uh, understand that the Christian life is not easy, and you never promised it would be, but that you will walk with us through those difficult times. But be with him, be with his wife, as they endure this difficult time. We continue to lift up Robert as well. And you continue to heal him and work in his life, and continue to be with his family as they support him and help him. for Jan, uh, that you would help her 
recover. I pray for her pain level. I'm not sure when the surgery is going to be, um, but I know Bill communicated that this is not a good time because um, I know that there are a lot of issues that they're dealing with with Jan's parents and Bill's mom has recently been in the hospital and it's never a convenient time to have a broken ankle. So I pray for your, your grace for both of them and for healing, wisdom for the doctors and pain relief for Jan. Father God, I just want to ask you to um, uh, heal the people with ALS, Lord. I just pray that um, you'll find a cure for um, uh, the disease that they have. Uh, it's terrible, Lord. And um, I just found another lady that had it, and I just, that makes four in just such a short time, Lord. I just pray that you will heal them and um, find a cure in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for the walk that's happening this afternoon for ALS. I pray that you give strength to Elizabeth as she walks and the other folks as well. Thank you that it's a beautiful day and not blasted hot. Um, give her strength. Give others strength. Pray too for Carolyn, that if she is able to come, and, and the others, uh, that, that they would have strength as well, and that they would be encouraged by what is happening this afternoon. Uh, pray too for Robert, that um, the sores in his mouth and throat would heal quickly so that he'd be able to eat and not be grouchy. Pray for uh, Donna, that you would sustain her and give her joy in the midst of this. And lift up Danette too. Thank you that um, she's had such good reports. I pray that you would um, ease the pain, the, the bone pain that she's been having and continue to strengthen her. Lord Jesus, as we continue in worship this morning, as we bring these requests to you, um, we're reminded of your sovereignty. We're reminded of your absolute, total control over all things. And uh, even beyond what was prayed about, we know there are many heavy things on all of our hearts, and there will continue to be. But Lord, we know that you are in control of everything. We know that there is no plan B, that everything that has happened and everything that will happen happens exactly according to your sovereign plan. May we rest in that. May we trust you. May we continue to bring our prayers and petitions to you, and may we continue to understand and know that everything will work out according to your will. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. 
Matthew writes, beginning at verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Father, bless your word this morning as we come to it, as we look at it together and study it together and consider what it is you want us to know. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the the disciples come to Jesus and they ask the wrong question. They ask the wrong question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's a parallel passage in Mark chapter 9 and a parallel uh, passage in Luke chapter 9. And in both of those chapters, uh, we, we see a little bit more behind the scenes. We see that they were having an argument secretly about who was the greatest. So the 12 are there, they're outside, they think, outside of Jesus' knowledge. Who's, who's the greatest? Who do you think it's going to be the greatest? Well, I think it's pretty obvious I'm going to be the greatest. And Peter says, I don't think it's you. I think it's, I think it's probably going to be me. And Judas is over there saying, well, I'm the one with the money box. I've, I'm going to be the greatest. And Thaddeus says, but I'm the I'm the, the bosom baby, I'm the little one, I'm the, the favored one. And John says, well, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. So, and it's, it's interesting to me, there, there's never a hint that any of them said, you know, maybe, just maybe, Jesus would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's the wrong question. Asking who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is a problem. So the the question that we have before us then is with that in Jesus' response, is the Christian life about climbing some kind of ladder to greatness? Is the Christian life supposed to be the pursuit of greatness? Is that supposed to be our focus? Now, for most people who, who are believers who go to church, they're not exposed to it, but if for those who are, uh, of us who are in ministry, especially vocational ministry, there's conferences and there's books and there's seminars and there's all of this. And I can promise you this, they never invite a pastor like me to speak at a conference of 5,000 people. Who, who do they invite? They invite the big guys. They invite the famous ones. They invite the celebrities. They're on TV, they're on the radio, and they've written books, and they've written commentaries. And, and there's some great men out there I greatly admire. I'm not knocking that. But we tend as people to imagine that greatness is to be our focus. There's a danger to greatness, though. Greatness is not to be our focus. In fact, the pursuit of greatness is a terrible danger. The Apostle John wrote in his, his little third letter, it's really more of a memo. He wrote this, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly disparaging us with wicked words, And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either, and he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So Diotrephes is a man who is determined to be great. And he considers himself to be greater than the Apostle John, greater than the other apostles, greater than those who are itinerant teachers, who are moving through. The brothers that are to be welcomed are the brothers who are traveling from from place to place. And at the time, there's no hotel system. There's there's no easy way to travel. And when a believer comes into a town, he finds out where are the believers. And there's the expectation that when somebody comes in, you will show them hospitality. 
And Diotrephes says, no, 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 you're not going to show them hospitality. In fact, if you do, I'll put you out of the fellowship. Now, it's interesting to me, in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with uh, their acceptance of a man who was uh, intimately involved with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. And Paul says, when you come together the next time, you put him out of the church. But John doesn't say this. This man, Diotrephes, is too dangerous for that. John says, if I come, I'll deal with him. You don't try to deal with him. The pursuit of greatness is dangerous. Diotrephes magnified himself. He hindered the ministry of others, even the apostles. He refused to welcome brothers and sisters in Christ. He even tried to expel believers from the fellowship who welcomed them. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists the deeds of the flesh. We would tend to think of the deeds of the flesh as being uh, issues of morality. And so he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. But then he goes to sins that have to do with the pursuit of greatness, competition between people. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying. And then he moves back to issues of morality, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Interesting in that long list, so many of them have to do with interpersonal relationships and the pursuit of greatness. As one person tries to advance on the bodies of of other people. I heard a, Linda and I both heard a pastor's wife describe many, many years ago, not in Nebraska, that it was said that you could walk in the rain from the parking lot to the church on the bodies of those whom she had harmed and never get your feet wet. The pastor's wife, who was determined to be great. And establish her greatness and establish her notoriety. Compare this to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the character of Jesus Christ. And there's no greatness in it, is there? There's no competition in it. There's no pursuit of personal magnification or aggrandizement in it. The pursuit of greatness is harmful to the pursuer. It's equally harmful to those around him or her, and it's harmful to the church. The pursuit of greatness led Diotrephes to put himself above everyone else. From from the, the smallest, youngest church member to the very apostles themselves. Years ago at a different church, I knew a man who wanted to be a filmmaker. He wanted this with every fiber of his being. It occupied his every waking moment. And he had absolutely no experience or reason to think that it would ever happen. I urged him to give his talent away so that he could learn in the process and that he could serve others. I encouraged him, make two or three minute videos. Go to the Norfolk Rescue Mission. Go to other nonprofit ministries and offer to make two or three minute promotional videos for them for free. Give your talent away. Give it away. You'll learn in the process. You'll bless others and you'll be blessed by the Lord. No, 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 no. He's going to write a feature film. He's going to direct it. He's going to produce it. And he was bitterly angry that our church would not give him hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this. He had this pursuit of greatness in his head. And it was devastating to him. and It was devastating to those around him. Well, Jesus' disciples are obsessed with this. They're talking secretly among themselves. Who's the greatest one? They're arguing, debating who's the greatest. And they they come to Jesus to settle the argument. So Jesus gives them a very practical lesson in what greatness is in the kingdom. He called a child to himself and set him before them. 
and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the child in the story is not the focus. Jesus is not saying the greatest in the kingdom are chronological children. We know that because he says, you have to be converted to become childlike. Heaven does not belong to those who are filled with pride and pursue self-accomplishment and personal independence. Heaven belongs to those whom God converts from being self-focused sinners to being childlike Christians who are no longer focused on themselves, but focused on the Lord, who are learning to give up their ideas of power and prestige and accomplishment in order to serve him quietly and joyfully where they are. Now, let me say, childlike does not mean childish. Childishness is natural to a child. It is not natural for Christians to be childish. It's not supposed to be. Children are childlike, of course, but they're also childish. So we we see... Uh, Romans 12.10 describe mature believers in this way, to being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. The, those of us who have experience with children know that they don't give preference to one another with honor. Philippians 2 says that we are to maintain the same love, be united in spirit, think on one purpose, do nothing from selfish ambition, or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding, uh, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the personal interests of others. This does not describe chronological children. This does not describe childishness. And then Ephesians 4 calls us to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Children in our homes, we've got three kids, we've got four grandkids. When they're little, they do not maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's simply not what they do. They're childish and they have to be grown up. They have to be raised. That's why we must be converted And that's why we see a call for a deep commitment to Christ, mature selflessness and sacrifice and a longing to see Jesus exalted in every aspect of life. That's why we have to be converted. Adults who are without Christ are not childlike. They're about self, self protection, self provision, self promotion. Finding those who are truly selfless in life is very, very rare. And we can no more do this for ourselves than we can grab ourselves by the scruff of the neck and lift ourselves off the ground. It's just not possible. We have to be converted. Years ago, there was a a live concert called Live Aid that had to do with uh, raising money for uh, famine in Africa, people suffering from a famine and uh, various rock stars did concerts and or did were part of this whole thing and they raised vast amounts of money and there were concerts in London and New York and, and somewhere in Asia and it was just all this huge thing. The comedian Ricky Gervais um, films this bit where he's walking through an African village and he's talking about the poverty and what people suffer and he sits down in this little hut and he's talking with this man and talking about the children and the poverty. And the, the, the singer Bono from U2 comes in and says, what are you doing? And then the camera pulls back, and it's a, it's a set. It's a movie set. And Ricky says, well, I'm, I'm filming this thing. And Bono says, you can't do this. You're not actually in Africa. And he says, but the people watching don't know that, do they? Why should I go to Africa when I can just do it in London? And Bono says, that's brilliant. Why aren't we doing that? And everybody comes in and it's all part of the skit. Because the pursuit of greatness is all about how you're perceived. It's not about what you actually do. 
but about how you're perceived. We have to be converted. So Jesus promises a blessing to those who receive his children. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Again, not speaking of literal chronological children, but those who have been converted. Christians, we would say, followers of the way, children of Christ. And we see how closely he identifies with them. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever welcomes one of mine welcomes me. Whoever shows hospitality to one of mine shows me hospitality. And there's clearly a blessing for those who do that. That doesn't mean that eternal life comes through treating Christians the right way. We cannot earn our salvation, but there are still temporal blessings that God provides. God blesses secular businesses for the sake of the the believers who work there. He might bless a city for the sake of the believers there. In 1 Corinthians 7, we're told that he blesses a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever for the sake of the believer. He'll even sanctify to some degree their children for the sake of the believer. But just as there's a blessing for receiving and welcoming a child of Christ, there's a danger for those who harm his children. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Millstones are not part of our world. So let me show you a picture of a millstone. This is a millstone. Here's the donkey pulling the millstone. I cleverly placed my arrow in front of the guy driving the donkey. My apologies. But this is the top of the man's head. So I estimate that the millstone's about three feet tall and about 18 inches thick. And if you look up the math, it's not hard math to do, but I don't get math, so I have to look it up. If you look up the math, this millstone probably weighs 1,500 pounds. And Jesus says it's better that that's tied around your neck and you're thrown into the ocean than that you harm one of my children. Just one of my children. Putting it a different way, the judgment of God for harming a child of God is worse than any earthly fate you can imagine. That's how much God loves his children. That's how much Jesus loves his people. That's his devotion to them. Uh, the, The passages that follow this we're going to be exploring in the next few weeks, but some of this theme continues. In verse 7, we read, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, in verse 6, he's just talked about those who cause his children to stumble, those who cause us to sin, who tempt us to sin, those who get in the way of our faith or try to destroy it those who try to cast doubts in our heads, those who bring harm into our lives. Jesus says it's inevitable that it's going to happen, but woe to him by whom it happens. He says in verses 8 and 9, it's better for a person to cut off their own hand or foot or pluck out their own eye than to cause a child of God to stumble. There's a frightful warning not to despise a child of God in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The sense, I think, there is Jesus says, if the veil of heaven was drawn aside and you could see exactly what happens there, no unbeliever would harm you. If they saw the favor of God upon you and the angels regarding you before the Father, they would never get near you because of the protection and the favor that you have. Verse 14, by the way, Jesus says, It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That is, God's love is is not fickle. It doesn't come and go. He doesn't say, today you're my child, tomorrow you perish. Out Out of neglect or out of a lack of love, he allows suffering to come into our lives that we may be taught, but not to cause us perishing. Now, Jesus here is not talking about the iron sharpens iron experience that we have with one another. 
where I irritate you and you irritate me, and we grow through that process as we talk, as we learn about each other, as we forgive one another, as we continue on and we grow in unity. He's not talking about that. He's talking about those who deliberately set out to destroy the faith and the spiritual life of a Christ follower. I've been in the Lord for a long time. I I don't think it's arrogance. I think it's just a long time of experience. I don't think it'd be possible for an unbeliever to destroy my faith. But there was a time when that was not true. There was a time when somebody who was smarter, older, more influential could have a devastating impact on my faith. And God says, woe to that person. These unbelievers are tools of the enemy who is trying to seek to deceive the very elect if that were possible. Some of these people will be co-workers or fellow students in school. Some of these people will will be friends and acquaintances. Sometimes they're even family members. What they have in common is they despise the Lord Jesus Christ and they seek the destruction of those who love him. So let's remember what we got started at at the very beginning. The disciples asking who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That being the wrong question. Jesus bringing the child and reminding them of what greatness really is. Why is it so common for you and I to pursue greatness in the kingdom of heaven? Let's be honest. Some of it's pride. Some of it's pride. Some of it's selfish ambition. I knew a young man when there was a Christian college in town. I knew a young man who was in school there. He was working on a two-year degree. He was on the verge of graduating, and he was sending out resumes to churches. Now, if you were on the... uh, search committee for a church and you were accepting resumes from somebody with an associate's degree in Bible, I don't know what position you would be hiring him for, but he was looking for starting out the gate, a lead pastor position in a multi-staff church. He was in the pursuit of greatness and that was because of pride But I think most of us pursue greatness because of a misunderstanding of the love of our God. We think that the the better we perform, the more we do, the more God will love us. We think God's love is measured out. And if we can do a better job, he'll give us more. And that's simply untrue. Romans 8 says this. Paul says, I am convinced that neither life, uh, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle. I'm handpicked by Jesus. Nothing can separate God's love from me. He says, I'm simply one of you. And there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. So every one of us should be daily confessing the sin of doubting the love of God, of questioning his devotion to us, which we do, of putting limits on his love, of of treating his love as just a big version of our love. Our love is weak and fickle. It's based almost entirely on our circumstances and about how we feel in this moment. But the love of God is absolute. God is not just a person who loves. God is love. God is love itself. Doubting his love is doubting him. And so there's no greatness. There's no reason for us to be pursuing greatness in the kingdom for the sake of his love. Because his love is as full and complete as it can be if you're in Christ. He does nothing halfway. He doesn't say, I'll love you a little bit today, and then tomorrow I'll see if I love you more. If you're his child in Jesus Christ, every bit of his love has been poured poured out upon you. He has no more to give. The issue is not how do we get more of his love given. The issue is how do we come and trust more in the fullness of love that's been given to us. That's why the greatest in the kingdom of God are childlike in their faith and their relationship to the Father. They trust him. 
They trust his love. They know their love. They don't question it. In the, the 20 months or so that uh, I, I was part-time at the rescue mission, I met a lot of different families, and families would come in, especially to chapel with little children. And, and uh, not every parent's a good parent. There are a lot of parents who are obviously dealing with drugs and alcohol, who are dealing with a lot of issues of immorality, who had done prison time, both of them. But, you know, when you watch them come in with a two-year-old, the two-year-old doesn't see the tattoos. They just see Daddy, and they assume his love. They see Mommy, and they assume her love. It's why the suffering of a child at the hands of a parent is such a terrible thing, because that child just assumes the fullness of love. We are to assume the fullness of the love of our Father. My mind knows this but my heart doesn't know it yet. My heart is still subject to feeling like God's love comes and goes. It doesn't. I know that it doesn't. And as time passes, my heart becomes more and more convinced of his love. So this is what I hope we would do. I I would hope that we would give up any idea of making ourselves great in his kingdom. Because it's unnecessary. I would hope that we would let the full weight of our hopes and dreams rest in his love. I would hope that we would let the full weight of our sins and our fears rest upon him. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. That word cast your cares upon kind of has the sense of saddling an animal, of loading up a pack animal, everything on your back putting it on his shoulders because he cares for you. I would hope that we would cast our cares upon him, our cares for ourselves and our cares for others because we have his care. I would hope that we would take everything that we try to cling to closely for for what we think is our own survival and give it up and just lay it upon him and understand he is who we need for survival. Let's set ourselves, heart, soul, mind, and and strength on his love and faithfulness. Father, I thank you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus. This is love. Not that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son to die for us. You've demonstrated your love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The problem isn't that you don't love us sufficiently. The problem is that we don't understand it. We don't fully believe it yet. And by your patience and by your kindness, day by day, you you take us down a process of learning to trust you more. And I thank you for your patience. I thank you that you don't require that we know it all at one time. I thank you that Jesus' disciples didn't understand this and that he taught them and in teaching them he has taught us. So would you enable each one of us, Lord, in this moment to rest in your love, to abandon the need for greatness, to abandon the need for accomplishment and achievement and to serve not so that we can gain but to serve out of love for you. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us and ask for your blessing to be upon them. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are dismissed.